I want to start with a question. Do you remember a significant meal that marked your life? When I ask that question, is there a meal that comes to mind? As I pondered the, that question, the first meal that came to my mind was a meal in Kinshasa, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I had spent a number of weeks with some Congolese brothers and sisters working on some difficult projects, and my time was coming to an end. It was my last evening in Kinshasa, and my Congolese friends, they wanted to celebrate a meal in downtown Kinshasa. We ate crocodile. That was a first for me. It's really good, by the way. But it was meaningful for me because of the context, because of the shared journey, because we'd done some hard things together, and because they were my brothers and sisters, and they wanted to honor me by sharing this meal. They made a sacrifice to make this meal happen. For me, the meal was filled with meaning. Around the world, families, friends, they gather around meals to share life, to share stories, to enjoy good food. People bond. In cultures around the world, the the big moments in the history of a people, they'll often be celebrated at a festive meal. And for us as disciples of Jesus, this is the big one. This is the big meal. It's referred to as the Lord's table, sometimes the Lord's supper. Sometimes we'll refer to it as communion, just communicating the idea that we fellowship with Jesus and with each other as disciples of Jesus. Sometimes it's referred to as the farewell meal because it was the last meal that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist, and that just means the giving of thanks. And so certainly the Lord's table includes all of this. It's the Lord being present. It's fellowship around the table. It's the giving of thanks for what Jesus has done for us. It's all about Jesus' love for us. And because of who he was and what he did in fulfillment of this meal, we have hope today. We have a reason to live. Human history has forever been changed. Each time we gather around the table, we sing God's song. We sing the gospel song, and the theme of the song is Jesus. So we're in Luke chapter 22. And before we read that passage, let's just set the context. In chapter 18 of Luke, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And he forewarns his disciples, Hey, I will be mistreated, they will kill me, but I will rise again. And the disciples, they just don't understand what he's talking about. In chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus proceeds toward Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, he enters on a donkey. And you'll remember the crowds, they sing Hosanna. Later, he cleanses the temple and the religious authorities. They're they're offended by his act. They challenge his authority. And again, they agree that they will kill him. In chapter 21, verse 37... Jesus spends his final week teaching in the temple. The text says in chapter 21, verse 37, that he goes to the temple every day, early, every morning. The crowds, they gather to hear him teach. And the text says that they they hang on his words. At the end of the day, he retires to Mount Olivet. So as we open chapter 22, the Passover feast, it's drawing near. 
Judas has already conspired to betray Jesus. He's just waiting for an opportune time, for the right moment. Jesus is sovereign over the moment. He wants to make sure that he celebrates this meal with his disciples before he is betrayed. And so he sends two disciples into Jerusalem. And he tells these disciples exactly what will happen as they enter. They're going to meet a man carrying water. And he's going to take them to a home. And the master of that house is going to show them to a large upper room. And it's exactly there that they should prepare the Passover. You see, it took some preparation. There would need to be a lamb, some herbs, unleavened bread, a cup of wine. In four moments during that Passover meal, the host of the meal would raise the cup. And each time the cup was raised, they would remember a promise that God had made to the people of Israel. They would read from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Say therefore to the people of Israel, and here's the first promise, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And so this is God speaking to Moses, promising to deliver the people of Israel. There's the first promise, first cup. Then a second promise, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. Second cup. Third promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Third promise, third cup. Fourth promise, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And so the Passover meal celebrates the fulfillment of these four promises that God made to Moses. More than 1,400 years before Jesus was born, the people of Israel, they were in captivity in Egypt. They were living in bondage, living under the oppression of a hostile foreign ruler, Pharaoh. God sent nine plagues to communicate to Pharaoh that he should loosen his grip on the people of Israel. He should let them go. The plagues were actually acts of grace, an opportunity to Pharaoh, for Pharaoh to repent. Each, each plague represented an Egyptian god. Each time a plague was sent, God was saying, the God of Israel is the true God. The gods of the Egyptians are false. But Pharaoh refused to repent. And so God communicates that he will send a tenth plague as an act of divine justice. And those that place themselves under his sacrificial provision will be delivered. The only way for your family to escape divine justice, whether you were Jewish or Egyptian, was to accept the sacrificial provision. Each family would need to kill a lamb. And the blood of that lamb was to be wiped on the doorposts of the family home. On the night of the final plague, if your family stood under the blood of that lamb, communicating that you were trusting in the God of Israel, you would be delivered. In your home, there would either be a dead lamb or a dead child. That was the tenth plague. So when divine justice came down, you were either under the substitute sacrifice or justice came down on your family. 
If you were under the substitute sacrifice, under the blood of the lamb, God passed over. That's why it's called Passover. Through this 10th plague, God delivered the people of Israel from bondage. Pharaoh let them go. A miraculous deliverance that led them into freedom, into the promised land. This deliverance, of course, known as the Exodus. And so every time for thousands, for a thousand years, more than a thousand years, for centuries, as the Jews celebrated the Passover, they would remember that defining moment in their history, that moment when they became a nation, a people, that moment when God delivered them. They would celebrate that moment, and the Passover would always point forward to a coming Messiah. Luke chapter 22 the Passover nears. And as I said earlier, Jesus sends Peter and John into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover. They will meet a man carrying water. That will be an unusual sight because traditionally it was the work of women to carry water. So they would have taken note. Hey, there's a man carrying water. They were to follow him to his home. And there in that home, the master of the house would show them to a large upper room, and there in that room they were to prepare the Passover. The disciples go into Jerusalem, and it happens just as Jesus has foretold. It must have been a very encouraging moment for those disciples to know that Jesus had foreseen everything that was happening that day. Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, He reclined at table and the apostles with him. Luke writes that the hour has come. The apostle John writes the same thing in his gospel. And when they write that, they're communicating that this is the Lord's moment. This is the Lord's hour. He's aware of it. Nothing is out of control. Despite all of the tension in Jerusalem, despite the forces arrayed against Jesus, Despite the suffering that he will face, it is his hour. Luke chapter 22, verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Jesus going to the cross, it wasn't a tragic mistake. It was not the human derailment of God's intended purposes. No, this was something that God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had planned from before the foundation of the world from eternity past. And so what would happen on that evening was exactly according to God's plan. Jesus would fulfill his mission. He would do exactly what he had come to do. Jesus was sovereignly present at the Passover meal. Sovereignly present. Nothing out of control. As Jesus contemplated his suffering is going to the cross, he knew that his life was in the Father's hands. Jesus was sovereignly present 2,000 years ago when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He has been sovereignly present every time the church has celebrated the Lord's table since then over the last 2,000 years, and he's sovereignly present today. We live in an interesting day. Many would say that Something has shifted on the global stage. It's interesting that Jesus spent that last week in Jerusalem, in the temple, speaking primarily about 
the end times, forewarning his disciples. We live in an interesting time. We live in the last days. But we, as disciples of Jesus, have nothing to worry about, nothing to be anxious about, because God is sovereign over this moment. He has his hand on our individual lives. He has his hand on our families. He has his hand on our world. Jesus is sovereignly present. And he desires to share this meal with us today. Let's keep reading. Chapter 22, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Verse 15 says that Jesus earnestly desired to share that meal with his disciples. Verse 17 says that he he takes a cup. Probably the second cup, the second of the four cups. Traditionally, the host of the Passover meal at this moment, he would refer to the second promise in the book of Exodus, and he would talk about the miraculous deliverance of the people of Israel from bondage. He would take the cup and give thanks, and he would refer to the lamb and the herbs and the bread And he would say something like this. This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. This unleavened bread, these wafers, these thin loaves of unleavened bread, they represent the bread that our forefathers ate when they escaped from Egypt because they didn't even have time for the bread to rise. They had no time to bake bread. This is the way that it happened. This is the bread of our affliction. Jesus is the host at this Passover meal in Jerusalem. And he raises the second cup and he fills it with new meaning. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He raises the second cup, gives thanks, grabs the bread, gives thanks and says, this is my body. This is my affliction. This is my suffering for you, on behalf of you, in place of you, as a substitute for you, in fulfillment of the Passover lamb, celebrated for centuries by the people of Israel. Now it is coming to fulfillment. I'm the sacrificial atonement. I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. I'm the one that will give my life for you. And on the basis of my sacrifice, your sins can be passed over. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus. I'm going to lead you in the ultimate deliverance from bondage, forgiveness of sin, and the gift of eternal life. That's what John was talking about just a few moments ago when he shared his testimony. Forgiveness of sin through Jesus and the gift of eternal life. 
Peter is there at the table and he doesn't really understand, but decades later he did understand and he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds we've been healed. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. When we remember, we recall. We remember the life, the death, the words of Jesus. If we gather around this table today and we celebrate together as the family of God, we hang on the words of Jesus. We've staked our lives on those gospel words. We hang on those words because Jesus hung on a cross for us. That happened 2,000 years ago. We hang on his words because he was willing to hang, to take on the shame for us. But it's not just to bring to memory when we remember. It's to elicit a response. Every time we come to the table, we say, Jesus, it's by, by grace that we're here. It's because you gave your life for us. It's because of your love that we're here. And we commit to follow you. We're weak. We fail. But we commit, Jesus, to love God with all that we are, to love our brothers and sisters, to love those around us, to serve. We commit to be like you. And thank you, Jesus, for being present. Not physically present in the bread and the cup, but present by his spirit, spiritually present to strengthen us, to empower us, to live as he did. And so we remember. In verse 20, we read, and likewise the cup after they had eaten. And so now it's near the end of the Passover meal, and Jesus raises the cup again, the third cup, the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption. And again, they're remembering the third promise from Exodus 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so Jesus, what he's saying to his disciples as he raises the third cup, I will act powerfully on your behalf. Jesus says in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so the third cup, it foreshadows the shedding of Jesus' blood on our behalf. He, the Son of God, will take the wrath of God upon himself. He will take our sin, our guilt, our shame. He will take it upon himself and pay the price for our redemption. Jesus takes divine justice upon himself. Pays the price we could never pay ourselves through the shedding of his blood. Because of the shedding of his blood, God passes over us and we stand in Jesus and his justice. Through the shedding of his blood, a new covenant will be sealed, a covenant of redemption. Just as the first Passover meal was celebrated before the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt, so this Passover meal with Jesus is celebrated before he delivers his disciples from sin. Jesus is inaugurating a new period in salvation history. He establishes a new covenant through his sacrifice of love. 
Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he rises again. And those that look to Jesus in faith and say, yes, Jesus, thank you for that sacrifice on my behalf. Thank you for taking my sin upon yourself. Thank you, Jesus. You've paid the price I could never pay. There's no way that I will ever earn my way into heaven, but thank you for paying the price so that I could receive the gift of forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live within me, to empower me to live as you did. Thank you for welcoming me me into the family of God. No matter where we come from, if we place our faith in Jesus, we become full members of the family of God. That's the new covenant. The Passover meal, you know, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back to the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. We remember Jesus and his disciples around the Passover table 2,000 years ago. We remember what Jesus did right after that Passover. And we always look forward to a future feast. Three times in these verses, in chapter 22, Jesus says, I will not eat or drink it until the kingdom of God comes. It's in verse 16, verse 18, verse 30. When he says that he's going to shed his blood, he's actually making a vow. You'll notice that in ancient times, covenants, they were sealed by blood. Noah, Abraham, Moses. And so Jesus is making a vow to his disciples and to us. A vow marked by his blood. And he says, I will get you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I will get you to the Father's house. If you are my disciple, there's a day coming when I will lift the fourth cup and we will eat and drink together. What a hope. Apostle John is at the table there. He doesn't really understand either. But decades later, he writes in the book of Revelation... Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. He speaks of this final feast. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, know that you're invited. And the Lord's going to get us there. Every time we celebrate the Lord's table, it's a prophetic statement. It's a hope-filled statement. We're remembering that the fourth promise made in the book of Exodus has been fulfilled in part and will be completely fulfilled at that ultimate feast. The fourth promise, of course, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. When Jews celebrate the Passover around the world today, the host of the meal, he'll grab the fourth cup. Before lifting the cup, those around the table will have sung psalms, psalms of praise, hallel, 
usually Psalms 113 to 118. And then the host of the meal will raise the cup and will say, next year in Jerusalem. No matter where the Jews are around the world, they will say, next year in Jerusalem. And that's a prophetic statement that the kingdom of Messiah is coming. And so in light of those words, let's read Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The bride, of course, being the church of Jesus Christ. The husband, Jesus himself. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So know that Jesus eagerly awaits the day described here in Revelation 21. Know that Jesus eagerly awaits the moment of his second coming. Know that Jesus looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He looks forward to the moment when he will lift the fourth cup with his disciples, with the multitudes in heaven. And the day will have come for his kingdom to come in its fullness. And if we are disciples of Jesus, then we will be there. Jesus will make it happen. Amen? Amen. 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 I'd call the communion servers to, to come forward. But we've proclaimed our hope, and we're called to live in light of it. Um, That's why the conversation that the disciples have right after the Passover meal is so ironic. Uh, Jesus explains the meaning of the Passover. He fills it with new meaning. He says that someone will betray him. And then this is what happens. Verse 23, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." So this conversation is just amazing. Jesus has just explained to them that he will go to the cross and die for them. He fills the Passover with new meaning. They question amongst themselves who will betray Jesus. And that morphs into a conversation about who is the greatest. 
And this is not the first time that they're having this conversation. You'll remember that James and John went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, could we sit on your right and left in the kingdom to come? And when the other disciples find out about that, they are really annoyed. So not the first time. We'll remember in the Gospel of John at the Passover meal, Jesus, he gets up from the table, grabs a towel and a basin, and he washes the feet of the disciples. Yet when the disciples think about a future kingdom, they're thinking like Gentile kings. They're thinking about honor and status. They're thinking about who will exercise power and authority. They actually betray Jesus in that conversation just right after the Passover meal. As they would have reclined at table that evening, you know, they probably sat in a horseshoe-like arrangement, and they would have ranked themselves according to their relationship with Jesus and each other. So the picture, the actual picture of that meal would have been fascinating, right? How did the disciples rank themselves that night? No one was saying, hey, John, you take the best seat. No, Matthew, you deserve it. You sit there right next to Jesus. Bartholomew, I'll wash your feet. No, no, no. Philip, I'll wash yours. That was not the conversation. They've ranked themselves. And then Jesus turns the tables when he gets up and he washes their feet and he says, the greatest among you is the youngest, the lowest in rank. You see, Jesus, he defines greatness as service. And so if we have come to this table today and we have said, hey, we are disciples of you, Jesus, we will follow you, then we commit to live as he lived. Then we too are to to define greatness for ourselves as service. What we're saying is, Jesus, we will love God with all that we are. We will love our brothers and sisters. We will love the people that you place in our lives, no matter who they are, people close to us, family, friends, neighbors, Colleagues, we'll love them, we'll serve them as you did. We'll turn up the volume on the gospel as we serve people, Jesus, today, this week, the rest of our lives. So may that be our commitment, to amplify the gospel as we serve all those that Jesus places in our path. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So Jesus, we just thank you again for your goodness to us. We've experienced abundant grace. We don't deserve it, but it's because of your love. Thank you, Father, for loving us in Jesus. Thank you that our sins have been paid for. Thank you for the freedom that we can experience. Thank you for the joy. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you that you've gifted us by your spirit and you've called us to do a whole bunch of good works in your name. And so, Lord, may we do that. Under the empowerment of your spirit, may we love, may we serve. Lord, we fail so often, and so when we lack love, Lord, may we ask for it. And thank you, Lord, that you will provide all the love, all the strength we need to serve others. Work through us, By your spirit, Lord, may your name be lifted high this week. May we turn up the volume on the gospel. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. God bless you.